G'day, here at the Regenerative Journey, part of our goal is to educate our followers on the benefits of knowing where their food comes from and the knock-on effects this can have on our health, our environment and our future generations. Understanding the connection has never been more important and in the spirit of this endeavour, we have teamed up with Highland Beef Pastoral Company, a grass-fed beef supply chain servicing the growing US grass-fed consumer market, who I'm excited to announce are our Season 6 show sponsors. Essentially, this Australian-based business places cattle on their member graziers' properties at no expense to the farmer and provides competitive returns for every kilo of beef produced, allowing their graziers to focus on improving their businesses in a capital-free and risk-free environment. Highland Beef Graziers are some of the best grass and animal managers in the country. Livestock are humanely and lovingly cared for while on their farms and customers are guaranteed a very high-quality, regeneratively managed grass-fed and finished product with full transparency from farm to plate. If you're interested in finding out more about this program, visit hbpastoral.com.au forward slash Charlie Arnott. We sort of need new recipes now. Now that we're, we're grappling with the reality of planetary boundaries, that we can't keep pu- pushing Mother Nature beyond what she can handle. I mean, we see her hemorrhaging. I mean, just drought being declared in England. Uh, people in Glasgow, 35 degrees, you know. Sweltering. Yeah, and, and, you know, and we're seeing that this is costing lives around the world. And, and I often see, you know, farmers, farmers know this so much more than, more than anyone because they're living it every day. That was Catherine Trebek, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an eighth generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. G'day. Welcome back to The Regenerative Journey. I find myself here again in the in my little office area at the farm at Byron Bay. Um, excuse me if the, the, the chair creaks and the trucks drive past and the magpies tap on the window and that sort of stuff. I've actually got a window now. I had it fixed the other day. Broke. Um, moving on. Uh, introing Catherine Trebek this week. But before again, before I go there, I'm just going to have a little chitty chat. Um... I haven't organised myself too well this morning, to be honest. But I do want to read out a couple of the wonderful, um, as I did last week, uh, wonderful um, testimonials. Well, not testimonials, are they? They're just sort of nice things that people will say on the podcast um, reviews and that sort of thing. This one uh, from, uh, oh, that's my phone going off. That's a bit naughty. The regenerative journey touches on the lives of the farmers, consumers, animal uh, animal welfare, planet and place for which we live. A tapestry of interconnection and a breath of fresh air to listen to when one needs a boost. The ecosystem of life is heard in the wise words of all the guests who share. 
I cannot recommend this podcast uh, enough. Thank you, Charlie, and all the guests. This one, um, the Doherty chat above all is brilliant. That'll be Darren Doherty. I can't remember what episode it is. It might have been season season three, I reckon. Amazing, lovely guy. I know he sat there um, uh, in his cafe there at Castlemaine um, and in a funny little storeroom. <laughs> He's very, very patient to let me move a few things around. And uh, we had a massive chat there. Uh, refreshing to hear a trainer speak openly about how for success you need a bit of everything. Um, another one here. I hope I haven't um, read these ones out before, but look, you know, stiff shit, if I have, um, this might be the first time for you. Love this and admire Charlie and all the guests. This is, this is uh, regen and holistic approach is ver- vital for our future. So what else do we have there? Um, I know, some feedback. Please, Charlie, cut down the episode's length in future and allow the guests to talk without, without cutting in so much and contributing. We want to hear them, not you. Episodes should be under... Um, 40 to 50 minutes in length. Keep up the great work. That's interesting. Well, that's a bit of <clears throat> bit of a, um, a, a feed forward um, uh, from Luke. Um, and thank you, Luke. I appreciate it. I hadn't seen that. So that's, that, that is good. Look, I don't know if I necessarily agree with you. I think um, I tend to get more feedback um, saying that, um, you know, things seem to be okay in terms of the balance. And I've been pretty conscious not to cut. I don't know if I cut people off. I think I jump in when I, when I think there's an opportunity to contribute in a meaningful way. Um, but nonetheless, really appreciate the feedback there, Luke. Um, wonderful podcast with so much useful information. As someone with chronic conditions caused by modern farming practices, I love this podcast and am inspired to find ways to support regenerative farming to help our climate, the environment and our health. Well done, team. Look, that's probably enough blowing the proverbial up myself. Um I might just turn that phone off. Uh, what today? Look, it's it's you know this um, this episode is going to be coming out um, probably close to Christmas. Actually, you're probably all in amongst the wrapping papers, or whether you've eaten your turkey, or I'm not sure quite where the date of that's going to be. Um, I can have a quick check when I have a bit of a shitty chat, but um, I think that the you know what is this time of year? What does it mean to you? Is it <clears throat> is it something that? Um, uh, is it, is it something that actually inspires you? Is it something that sort of gives you, oh, you know, 20th of December this is coming out, so it's just before Christmas. <clears throat> Are you a bit over Christmas? You know, is it too commercial? Um, you know, is it, I know I was talking to someone the other day and they just said, I just, <clears throat> I just don't like Christmas. It's just, you know, it's the chore, it's the, it's the visits, it's all this sort of stuff. I mean, there's, there's you know, there's every, every every angle to see the same kind of concept. For some, it's just the one opportunity for all families to come together and, and gather and have a, have a lovely time. Um, I don't sit on the fence on that one. I actually – I don't mind Christmas. I'm not generally the one who's doing all the organising, so it's probably a bit of an easy gig for me, but um, – it is an opportunity, it, you know. It, it is a juggle, especially for families who, you know, one year you go to the your parents and the next their parents and kind of, you know, it's, it's always that consideration. We've always been pretty um, decisive with how we do it. I do know that uh, was it last Christmas or the Christmas before might have been we um, we were supposed to have it with my parents in Sydney, but we got we got we were in Melbourne beforehand, and then New South Wales got shut down and the border got shut, and we pretty much had a. A last-minute Christmas down in Melbourne, which is wonderful, and we made up for it, of course. Um, but yeah, no, I don't know. It, it, mixed emotions, I think, this time of year. It's minutes to mid, minutes to, to Christmas, isn't it? Uh, I'm recording this in early December, and um, 
there's a there's a heightened sort of sense of urgency now. You know, people are kind of in, anticipating some time off, but God, I don't know anyone who's not sort of scrambling to to get all their jobs done um, uh, before before they knock off. Um, is there anything else contemporary in the world that I want to talk about? I did get a few thank yous for touching on the foot and mouth um, uh, issue and in previous rants. Uh, yeah, don't know where that's up to, the mRNA vaccine. Um, I did, talking about that stuff, I did actually note um, with some joy the, in the last couple of days that it had been um, that any mandates, I think any health-related um, health government sort of health-related mandates for employees, staff and so on, but been dropped, which is an interesting, interesting thing um, that that's finally happened and what that will mean for other industries. You know, sort of as someone made a comment, it's sort of hard to have rules for one industry and not the others, and I don't know where everything else is up to, but just pleased that that is, um, that's the case. And interesting also uh, that... Um, I was just talking to uh, a fellow this morning um, who, who's got a good angle on most on, on things, on all things, <clears throat> talking about how um, 18 months ago the mainstream media was bang on about how horrible it was these protesters were protesting for freedom and, and you know, they deserved to get shot with rubber bullets around the, you know, the, the memorial at Melbourne in the Botanic, near the Botanic Gardens there and, you know, they should have been locked up and all sorts of stuff. The mainstream media went nuts, you know, and even, you know, Koshy's saying, what do you do when your unvaccinated relatives turn up for Christmas? And it was just horrible, horrible stuff. Anyway, I noticed in the last week, not that I've been told, I've seen a bit on the, on the, uh, on the socials because I don't watch mainstream media. As a rule, um, the same people from the same mouths are now saying, oh, isn't it horrible what's happening in China? You know, good on them for protesting against the government tyranny and the, their lack of freedom and getting locked up and all these mandates and their zero tolerance. That's horrible. It's like, are you serious? Were you not saying that 12 months, 18 months, exactly the same thing, but, well, in reverse, like 180 degree? Fascinating. I find that fascinating. The same people, the same mouths saying totally the opposite thing with as much conviction and earnestness. It's, um, it's, it's really interesting, you know. So moving on, Catherine Trebek. I had a, she, was a, she, um, she presented at the RCS conference um, a couple of, a couple of, um, uh, a couple of months ago now, July, in, in Brisbane. Uh, and she had a fantastic uh, presentation. Um, I asked her a question about... Um because she, she and, and this is not a criticism by any means, she was talking a lot about sort of government, not intervention, but a government um, uh, influence or the role that the government could play in sort of creating a wellbeing economy, uh, which I don't disagree with, but I also was keen to understand, you know... <laughs> Um, and also make the point that I think, you know, these things generally come from community. Governments follow in the footsteps of. I don't know they're necessarily leaders. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't call many politicians leaders at all. Um, but, you know, our chat, my chat with Catherine was fantastic. I did at the Botanic Gardens. Um, it was just, was it before? It was before. It was in the morning before I spoke to Walter. Uh, Walter Yana, who's now out and about in his, uh, his, his episode released recently, we had wonderful chats um, uh, about sort of well-being economies. You know, the sort of the, um, I guess, not the irony, but kind of the 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 way that a a a country's economics and or success. You know, the GDP, gross domestic product, is you know basically 
it's not a very good measure of um, of well-being. In fact, it doesn't measure well-being. An interesting thing is a, a case in point there is that, you know, the prison industry and the illness industry contribute to a country's GDP, you know. So she talked a lot about um, her role with the Wellbeing Economy Alliance and, uh, you know, how can we sort of um, talk more about... Um, Humankind, the humankind index, um, including that. You know, how do we, how do we sort of? And she's written some fantastic papers. That's all in the show notes as well. Um, and just, just some really good yarns about you know, her role or, or, or what we can do as, as communities to improve the wellness of our countries, basically. You know, and how we measure that and how we make that a really relevant and pertinent thing to um, to focus on. It's not just all about the economics. It's not that we forget about economics, but wellness contributes to the economics of a of a of a, of a business or of a, of a of a world uh, of the country. Um, Lovely chat with Catherine. Um, she's now Canberra-based. She was in Scotland for many years, had a few yarns about that. Um, but I hope you enjoy this interview with Catherine Trebek um, as much as I did recording it uh, for The Regenerative Journey. Catherine Trebek. Yep. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey and welcome to the Dixon Room here in the Australian National Botanic Gardens in Canberra. Thanks, Charlie. We're looking at, I believe you've been here before as a... Um, as a kid. As a little yeah, girl. Yeah, yeah, and as an auntie with my little nephews. But not recently. I haven't been in this room. That's a lovely sunny vantage point. No, unless you're a staff member in trouble uh, or on the board, I guess you probably haven't been in here. We're lucky yeah. to... little secret courtyard. I know, it's great there. I was actually... Because Michelle was in here the other day and she sussed it out and... Um, I'm was kind of hopeful that the day might improve and I might do something out there, but I think this is great. We still see the view. Um, for those who haven't been to the Botanic Gardens here in Canberra, it is amazing. I haven't been. I've only been here once, to be honest. Truth to be known, I've been to the um, Arboretum a few times, but it is wonderful. I'm um, meeting Walter Yena. Um, or Yena, depends. I have to find that how, they said how best. Yena, at Yena? The conference where the difference, we met, yeah. but that might not be the correct. I'll make sure I know. Walt, um, who's a legend. So he's done a lot of work here, and that's why we're sort of here. Um, and, and Catherine, where are. So that's why we're here at the Botanic, Botanic Gardens in Canberra, apart from the fact you're from Canberra, so that was, mm-hmm. was going to work out really well. I generally in, interview my guests in their happy place, oh. like on their farm, in their garden their place of work. Um, this isn't necessarily your happy place. Um, I guess two questions. Does it make you happy? And where is your happy place? What, if, if we were to be interviewed anywhere in the world, if I was to interview you, sorry, anywhere in the world where you would be looking out upon something that made you happy, where would that be? Oh, love that question. So one, very happy to be at the Botanic Gardens. So this can go on the list of my, my happy places. <laughs> but I have many happy places. So I've just come back from, from Scotland and there are many, many happy places there, usually looking at up, up at a big, massive mountain as the you know, clouds whip across the, the vista. But for a long time, you know, when you do those sort of, you know, quiet meditations at the beginning of a meeting or something, and people often say, think of a place that's peaceful. For all that time I'd been overseas, I so often would think about a particular little gum tree up on Red Hill um, behind my parents' house here and that looked out over Canberra with all the beautiful valleys and the mist and the hills but also the you know the city beneath so I guess um, underneath a gum tree on a hill in Canberra 
no matter which hill it is, no matter which gum tree, mm. but that's probably my criteria for a happy place. Well, we weren't too far. We're geographically not that far away because Red Hill's on the other side of the, yeah, uh, yeah, the, the lake, Lake Burley Griffin. I understand that it was actually Walter's... Um, uh, is that his namesake? No, well, no, Walt, Walt Burley... <laughs> Walter Burley, Burley Griffin. Yeah. His wife actually did a lot of the architectural design of Canberra. She's done well. But he got the he got the cred. Yeah. Probably a As sign. Often happens. Yeah. With, well, with architects too. How rude. Yeah. Um, so that was a bit of there you go, a bit of bit of um, bit of um, Canberra uh, trivia there. So well, I'm glad that 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 that's great, and that wasn't a setup. Um, we are under kind of a few gum trees here, and so mm-hmm. and not far from. So that's awesome. Uh, Catherine, as I did. Um, Quickly give you the heads up there just today um, about the regenerative journey. It's a, it's all about your um, your regenerative journey, and 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 I, I often and, and a lot of people use the word regenerative in the, the context of farming. Mm-hmm. Now you're not a farmer, no, and that doesn't matter. Okay, good. Because it's it's about regenerative living, regenerative life, and that you know I, I kind of assume that. Yeah, most people, certainly the ones I interview, um, are on a regenerative journey of sorts. You know, whatever that whatever that means to them. So, where would you want, where do you want to start? You mentioned before you you grew up in Canberra. Do you want to start there? At, at, at what age is, are you comfortable starting? Oh, you can at? go back as far as you want. What hospital you're born in? Oh, I was born in Canberra Hospital, where now the museum is. On so, the yeah. on the on the point on the out here on the lake, uh-huh, yeah. that was a hospital. Yeah, it was. Yeah, so much. Did they convert now. the old hospital, or did they knock it down and oh, build a new? Oh, it's actually there's a little tragic story there. They imploded it, and <sighs> being Canberra, that was a big event for the city, and they had people lining the shores of the lake. And I think there was a. I wasn't here at the time. I was at Melbourne for uni. I, I think, if I'm getting my years correct, but I think there was a competition on the radio for who got to push them. You know, the explosives. Oh, the, yeah. And what happened is the explosion didn't go well and it, things, debris flew out. And I think, if I remember correctly, I think a little a little girl was, was injured and, and fatally. Oh, so, no. yeah, horrid for yeah, what could have been such a fun, beautiful day and here's going to be a new era for this building and this location and just, yeah, tragic. Wow. Tragic. So that's that. I was born there many years before that. Yeah. Uh, but it's now this beautiful museum and it's, it seems to have a really good exhibition on at the moment called Connection, about Aboriginal connection to country and I hear, I'm hoping to go. I haven't been able to go yet, but hoping to go with loads of beautiful imagery and sound and lighting. Well, my, uh, as I was saying to you before, my family are in um, Canberra today, so that's what they're going to go there before they pick me up this afternoon. Um, so that's fantastic that that's on. I did see a dinosaur. I was telling you that, Lord, he's all, all about dinosaurs. and Well, I didn't say dinosaurs. I said animals alive and dead, but especially the really old ones, like pterodactyls. Pterodactyls. No, pterodactyls, he calls them. Um, so he'll be thrilled to see um, to see that this afternoon. So you were born there yeah. before its demolition. Yeah, yeah. Um, what happened? Where were you living? What, what, were, what, were you, what, was it, what were your interests as a girl in Canberra? Was it, were you happy? Oh, happy I, loved, girl? I loved growing up in Canberra. Yeah, and in hindsight, Canberra gets a bad rep, doesn't it, from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think less so now, but, yeah, in hindsight, it was such a privilege 
cocoon of a place to grow up in. You know, I went to school that you know I was really happy in and had great friends and loved just being able to cruise up the mountains and the local ones, but then also down to the snowies and easy distance to the to the beach and and you know my family's always had sort of links to farming, so out to out to various farms, one particularly in, in West Wylong, so far. Oh, yeah. So yeah, flat, flat yeah. Land, landscape. And did you go through Burua on the way to yeah, West Wylong? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That was the most important question. <laughs> it's all about, it all starts with Bora, doesn't it? Yeah. I, Thank I, you. I, Thank you. I keep telling everyone that. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, really, really very conscious of that privilege, actually, of growing up in Canberra. And then, you know, as often people do, did a gap year over in the UK and then came back to Melbourne for my, my uni. And that was fun, different. Mm. I felt like a bit of a country girl in Melbourne, but enjoyed that too. And your family in Canberra, were they, they were, you know, they had careers here and why Canberra? Yeah, were you, were they, they from Canberra? They're, or was they're it kind Sydney-siders, of, but okay. they, they moved here for, for work just before I was born. Mm. So I, I wonder if I was probably one of the first sort of generation of people who, you know, of, of settlers who, yeah. you know, because Canberra is often people come in for work and so on. So yeah. yeah. Uh, but being born and bred in, in Canberra is... Yeah, I'm quite proud of that. Now. Special. Yeah. It is actually pumping. We went to, um, oh, well, we got here yesterday and stayed at a hotel and, or apartment block, and it's really like smarty pants buildings going up everywhere, cafes. We went to Messina, plug for Messina, um, in Lonsdale Avenue, I think it is, oh, yeah, in Braden. Pacific, Braden, yeah. Braden, that's right. It's very trendy. Now. And they were saying that, oh, I was pumping last night on a Sunday night, and they were saying that that Messina is the busiest of the lot, and they've got them in um, Bondi, um, you know, there's, there's Sydney and, and Darling. There's a few of them. I could not believe it. And that was you said, yeah, out the door in winter in Canberra, the queue. That's brilliant. For, 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 for gelato. Um, so, and then, I know, they are bloody toughy, these ACTarians, <laughs> um, Territorians. Do you know the other thing I'm loving, which I don't know why I hadn't appreciated it before, but pretty much from every street or path or park you're in, you can see mountains. Mm. No matter where you are, and that's Mrs. Walter. This is yeah. Mrs. Burley Griffin. Yeah, her, her spatial design. And I'm just, I'm loving that because having coming come back from Scotland, where I crave those mountains. Mm. It just, and I lived in Glasgow, so the centre of Glasgow, and I could see some mountains. But here, I'm, I'm just, and I don't know why I hadn't appreciated. I mean, I've always appreciated the sort of bush capital thing. Mm. But my God, it's awesome! Almost every street you're in. Um, what are the ones called? I should have Brindabellas. Brindabellas, yeah. that's right. Because it's Brindabellas. The Brindy, the Brindies for the locals. Because um, I know there's yeah, Brindabella Airlines. William, you can use the nickname. <laughs> you have to be, have to have lived here for thirty years to do that. Um, so. Camp, uh, where did we get to there? Oh, no, gap year. Your gap year. Um, in Was it in Scotland? No, I wish. No, where no, was it? It was in, in Kent in England. Oh, lovely. I was, I was you know, that ubiquitous sort of rent-a-roo teaching yep. sport at a school there. And that was yeah. fine. The proper gap year. Yeah, you, yeah. you know, you, you sort of you do it to get your interrail pass and, mm-hmm. and cruise around Europe. But, but that actually, that's where I first went to Scotland, and it was towards the end of that year. And... It, it really struck me. It felt like going home. And that was quite confronting because I'd been to all these beautiful places in Europe. I'd been to Ireland. Going to Scotland felt like going home. And I would, to be really honest, I was a bit embarrassed about saying that for a, a while. It felt like, I don't know, some, some American person. <laughs> yeah, my ancestors are Scottish. But, and it was actually many, many years later talking to an Aboriginal woman that I was working with. And, and 
And she said, well, but if that's where your people are from, then no wonder. So they are. And some, yeah, but way, way, way back. Um, but it, it somehow her saying that legitimised that sense mm. of place and that sense of home that I felt in Scotland. So, yeah. So is Trebek a Scottish name or is it your... Cornish. That's Cornish. Cornish. But my mum's <laughs> Menzies and there's McClellan's and Cameron's and... But, it, I mean, it, it is way back. Yeah. It's, um, but, it, I mean, Scotland's also, I mean, anyone listening who's been there or has Scottish roots or has, you know, watched Rob Roy or Braveheart will know it's, you know, it's a, it's a special place. And, I mean, happy to, happy to chat all that's going on there at the moment. The politics is firing up. It's mm. likely to be an independence referendum in the next couple of years. So, but it, it's got, I mean, the people are so funny. And I think there's a real commonality in, almost in humour and laid-backness in the, the Scots mm. and Aussies, if I can make those sweeping statements. I felt I felt very settled there. Well, there's no doubt that a lot of Australia, you know, the convicts and, you know, the the, the, the first white settlers here, well, we don't even know if they're the first ones, do we? The Dutch and the, God knows, the Portuguese and God knows who else was, Dirk Hartog and who, who knows where that all started. Um, but certainly the, 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 the convicts that came out here, you know, they were obviously European and um, I guess they were Irish and Scottish and Welsh and English. Oh, and some of the governors, I mean, Macquarie. Yes. I mean, they, they did... You know, was Macquarie, got, was he a Scot? So, I think what's well, a Scottish name. I don't yeah. know. I, I should have learnt, studied my, my primary school history. But, yeah, and mm-hmm. flip, you know, we can't romanticise the Scottish role. They did a lot of damage uh, to some of them. But, but yeah, there, there are sort of those long century root, century-odd roots of, of Scots, you know, being shipped out or being part of that frontier, you know, invasion activities, um, you know, right through. There's, I hear Scottish voices on the radio here now too, which is really nice. I'm you know, just, you know, reading the sport or the health report. It's a great, it's a great accent, isn't it? Um, we love. It. I know my wife particularly likes Scottish accent, and I can't do it. So, so, um, but my family, uh, Le Monde. Uh, so is Loch Lomond up there somewhere, in, not in Scotland? Loch Lomond? I'll check it out. It is. There is. I'll tell you. I haven't been. I don't think I've been there. Maybe I drove past it. Um, that one, oh, Loch Lomond, you mean? Lomond. I thought... <laughs> Le, oh, Lomond. L-O- I was thinking of French. Is it L-O or L-A? Well, it, it, well we've got a bit of Le, French in Le there. Lomond. Well, see, that's where it gets a bit hazy because... Um, and there was also Lamont as well. So, but Loch Lomond is the is one. It, is it L-O, L-O or L-A? L-O. L-O. It is L-O. Yeah, yeah. well, I and think that's. Yeah, Lomond. And it's, it's beautiful. So it's right near, so it's a big lock outside Glasgow. So I know it well. Is that the way you're saying the water comes from? No. Uh, near there. No, near a lot, there. A lot yeah. nearby. But, and um, Ben Lomond, which is the sort of big mountain nearby, is the mm. southernmost of the Munros. So it means a mountain that's over 3,000 feet high. So huh. beautiful, beautiful part of the, yeah. the country. And there's a, a mum's family um, came from Glenshee uh-huh, near yeah. um, Bally. Up in the oh, Avenue, Yeah, I drove there years ago. It's going. That's yeah, right. Skiing, yeah, I saw that and went to the um, cemetery and tombstones and oh. all that sort of. It was was beautiful. And then farming there, and then for many generations, farming up that part of the world. On and then my dad's side, a similar kind of. Um, and French and anyway, mm-hmm. long, long story, not about me. So let's go. So you did the gap year, you came back, you said you went to um, Melbourne, Melbourne yeah. uni. What did you do there? To Melbourne, uh, studied. Arts, yeah, did Melbourne mm. uni. Did you study? Yeah, yeah, did. loved it. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, and actually I think having had the year off, I was really excited to study again. I think if I'd gone straight from school, I just probably would have wanted to party, but I kind of did that in my gap year. So, yeah, I had I head down. Um so, yeah, studied and then went on and I did... It's funny how these sort of 
looking back at it now, how these sort of doors open and opportunities happen and in hindsight how they all make sense, but maybe just feel that's interesting on, on the time. Uh, I ended up doing a bit of, instead of sort of pulling beers to, to make my you know, my spending money, I ended up working at Rio Tinto, just in their sort of, they had a student room, so press, you know, helping with the press clippings, that sort of thing. This is in Melbourne. In Melbourne, yeah. yeah. And I got really interested. This was sort of the late 90s. I got really interested in what they were doing around their Aboriginal relations work mm. and what they called at the time corporate citizenship. And so I ended up... Well, that's refreshing they were doing it back then. Yeah, they were back then. Yeah, well. yeah I mean, I'm ha- happy to talk about all the dynamics because it was, it was really fascinating. I, I was, it was quite heartening. There were some incredible people there at the time. And so I ended up doing my PhD back here at ANU, so just up, up the mm. road. But it was looking at Rio and its relationship with First Nations communities around three of its different mine sites or prospects. For your PhD? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I was sort of... I was sort of asking this question, you know, this idea, because it was in political science, so I was asking this idea of democracy, you know, it means power to the people. In the governments, so absent in, in some of these localities, you know, the big powerful entity is the mining company. How could Aboriginal people exert influence and get the mining company to change its ways or undertake certain behaviours? And and so I was looking at Jabaluka, um, with the sort of uranium store in, up in Kakadu. I was looking at Century Zinc Mine up in Cape York and out in the Pilbara. And really different contexts, but and di- very, very different requests, I guess, if I can use that word, from, from the communities around their mine sites. In some locations, they're like, nope, we don't want you here. Others, there was a difference between younger and, and older generations about whether they wanted the mine to come in. Um, so really, really complex, but fascinating to see how government pretty much bent over backwards for the for the miner to come in, changing legislation, uh, running around the world on diplomatic missions, trying to get the UN to change, listing Kakadu National Park as in danger, all sorts of things. And it was this, you know, it was power that these communities could mobilise through a combination of protesting or sometimes physically blockading, going to shareholder meetings, linking up with unions or environmental groups. And, yeah, fa- fascinating time. But also really saw how a couple of individuals in those, those the companies who really got got the importance of, of talking to communities and working with communities if, and they almost have brought that from their from their gut, and then they could marry that with saying this is sensible for business. So that's when it, it really it really worked. But yeah, as you've, you've hinted at, I think Rio has maybe changed a little bit since then. Because it was them who blew up that um, yeah the, the gorge. Yeah. So it was last. Was it last? Like, last? Yeah, it was. Didn't it? Long. Yeah, I haven't been following it closely since because I've, I've been away. But but yeah, I, I'm. I mean, this is such. Conjecture. I don't think it would have happened in the years I was looking Back at then. Rio. Yeah, but I mean, it's got a Rio's got a history. Um, you know that midnight oil story. Mm. It's a burning. It's mm. about one of sort of Rio's, uh, you know, earlier iterations in the fifties, burning down um, uh, up in Kamalco. Yeah, an Aboriginal community up near. Really. Up near, so for the for the bauxite up in Cape York. So back to the government. There, you, you just mm. I think you just said that the the government were kind of helping move these companies into these areas. Mm. Is that, so that was an active kind of a thing because yeah, obviously there was... Yeah, examples. So, I mean, obviously native title 
laws had, had come in and there are heritage laws as well. But there are examples where government was offering essentially to re- override or renege or repeal some of that legislation. You also had the government at the time with the Jabaluka case essentially saying to the communities, the Mirar people, that you know, you've got to let this mine go through because you need the royalties for roads, breakfast centres, primary schools, the sort of stuff that, you know, grow up in, growing up in Canberra, you just take for granted that as a it. right of citizenship. And so it was almost you ha- you have to was accept... It was a blackmail on the way. Pretty much, yeah, mm. yeah. And then You can say it, blackmail. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> and they were, I mean, it, it, this sort of substi- substitution, it's called, you know, substituting mining royalties and mining provision of services for what, you know, basic rights of citizenship that government should pro- provide. So really, prob- really problematic. It was dressed up as, you know, essentially, without saying it ex- exactly, that if you don't, you're not going to get those you get those basic human It was, it was almost citizen. that explicit. Yeah, that explicit. And, and so in, in localities around the world, often miners are providing those because they need healthy workers eventually and educated workers so there's you know there's a rationale they can they can justify but for the community up the road that doesn't happen to be sitting on an ore body or says we don't want mining here what happens to them so it's really fraught in terms of yeah role of government and and also corporate power and government power but actually what we what we saw is the mining company saying yeah, okay, well, you can give us the legal licence. We also need the social licence, which I noticed was a term that's still in, in use here and was talked about quite a bit, that idea of the social licence to operate. was talked to quite a lot at um, the conference where we met a few a few weeks ago, which is really telling. And, yeah, so, I mean, I haven't been following Rio since, but, it, yeah, I, you know, there was instances where you had the company saying, all right, yeah, we, we know we need to sit down and figure out who to speak to and understand demands and figure out our role in, in meeting those demands. Isn't it interesting that that was back then in the late 90s, as you said, and there was a reasonably, there was a level of consideration and, and, and consciousness about that by the sounds of it, and then that clearly was rewound, re, rewound at some point and gone backwards, especially because it's not like the last two years that people talk about social licence. Like there has been a steady, I would, I would suggest, from the nineties, you know, incorporation of um, indigenous, um, you know, conversations and you know permissions and at least you know um, contributions to whether it's mining or you know, a road going through it, whatever it mm-hmm. happens to be. That that's actually. There was a re- regression within Rio. I guess that might be. A, a, is it? A, I guess it's the people in power that go. No, that's a load of bollocks. We don't not going to bother with that. Yeah, or... I don't know what happened in terms of key individuals leaving. I mean, that that was one of the lessons. Actually, you can have all the policies in the world. It comes down to individuals. Mm. So whether it was key individuals leaving, or yeah, I don't know different different context or I haven't, I haven't followed it up. Other, mm. Others, I'm sure, will have studied it and will have hypotheses over what went what went on. Um, and government too, I guess, you know, change of parties and prime ministers and ministers and it's like mm. then things just sort of get taken off the table or put, put back on. So PhD, uh, so Melbourne, Rio, PhD back in Canberra with, with Rio. So was that, was that a formative kind of study the whole, you know, the Rio thing and the, the the touch points with the indigenous culture and kind of, you know, is, did that set you up for um, things, or that was a bit of a departure from um, your plan? Yeah, never had a plan. Mm. It's more, hey, that's interesting. Dive deep into, into that. 
because uh, well, after I submitted the PhD, I went off to Scotland and people were saying, well, hang on, you, you've done this, this work here and now you're heading off to Scotland. And actually, some of the patterns are really were really similar. I mean, I didn't go to Scotland for work. Um, I've, I've never been someone who's sort of moved for work. I thought, yeah, here's where I want to be. Mm. And at the time, I was, you know, having gone to Scotland in that gap year experience and really felt connection. And having gone back since for a, a uni semester, I thought, no, I still haven't got Scotland out of my system. So I thought, yeah, got to go. So this was well, 2005, and the, some of the commonalities there around that so often that confluence of, of corporate power and state power, community connection to the land. I mean, particularly, you know, you know up, up north in Scotland, around the islands, you know, very, very strong connection to the land. Mm. And also, you know, folks being at the forefront of climate change as well. Where there's some islands that people might know of, uh, the Uists, so the South Uist and North Uist, and they are so flat. And they are, you know, these are crofters, you know, so tiny, tiny crofters. I want to get back to the crofters, but yeah, sorry. Well, they're they're just seeing the impact of rising sea levels, more ferocious weather. It's coming into onto their farming land. It's ruining their crofts, and they, and so just some of those patterns, obviously very different in one sense, but some of the patterns were, you know, and, and I often say, when you hear similar stories from different locations but you hear the same sort of story again and again and again that's when you know something systemic's happening and I think that started to plant some of the seeds and there are a few other moments in the work I try to do now is really looking at some of the systemic structural causes of the challenges facing the world today and and I guess I've never thought of it that way in a sense in a way but those patterns between Australia and, and a place like Scotland and the UK really add feed into that um so yeah scotland and but i'd been funny little diversions that happen i'd spent a couple of months working in cameroon during my uni time as well and that also made me think i had been wanting to do community development or and i was also really interested in sort of global trade stuff i thought that would be fun because i just had a cool lecturer at uni Mm. yes so often that's what it takes make all the difference yeah having an awesome lecture awesome awesome woman working on global trade and then in Cameroon, I, I just sort of spent this time in a, in a village trying to be helpful at a hospital there, probably not being particularly helpful, but making friends and spending time with this tiny village. And when I got back to, to Melbourne, a few weeks later, I got word that that village had been decimated by a flood. And so my instinct was to just go back, get on a plane, go back and do what I could to help. And I happened to have been doing a course at that time with a woman who was teaching, I think the course was along the lines of human rights in Southeast Asia. And she was an activist and academic from East Timor. And and she said to me, oh, you know, don't be so stupid because, you know, you're this white girl. You'll you get in the way. And I, my sort of reaction was, yeah, but I'll, I'll go and fill sandbags or something. And she said, no, you're, you're here at uni. Get as much education as you can and work on why that village was vulnerable. And... At the time, I don't think I really clocked how significant that bit of advice was. But, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, the privilege to be able to have that education 
and to then be able to deploy it, to look upstream and, and look at, yeah, some of the systemic causes of why communities like that one in Cameroon, like the profiters in Uist, you know, why communities in Australia are having to trade off, you know, having mining come in on a sacred site to get basic rights of citizenship. Some of these things, are, you know, have their roots in the same the same, the same story. Let's get back to the crofters because th- when I was over there uh, 20 years ago, um, one of the trips I did over there and stayed with some people at Isle of Sky and they had a large estate there and um, beautiful, amazing. And they talk, the first time I heard about the crofters and they had a number of crofters that were on their land. And from what I understand from back then, they they had been there for a long time and their families had inter- you know, generational kind of tr- crofting, if that's the word. And that there was not things were not always and I only got one side of the story from the state owner's point of view pretty or good you know in terms of um, tenure you know and, and who 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 deserved to be there who should be there who shouldn't be there how long they you know kind of could stay around and their rights as crofters and it was struck me as a really interesting system because it doesn't sound like it's like in Australia you've got a land owner, you know, this, that's the official kind of way to, to put it and they're a family generally and some corporates and then they work the land. But over there it's, it's, it, it's a bit different, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, Scotland is profoundly unequal in terms of its land ownership and there's a debate that's really brewing about that at the moment and I won't get the precise figures but it's something like 400 people own something like 90, I mean, the stats will be wrong, but it's of that magnitude, 90% of Scottish land. Wow. Queen being some, but there's a guy called the Duke of Buccleuch, there's a guy who's a very, very rich person from uh, Denmark who's trying to rewild stuff. Um, so huge inequality, though, in land ownership. And people are really saying this is at one of the roots of some of the in- other inequalities in, in Scotland and also questions of power that come into that. So crofting's been around for a while. Um, I'm not an expert in it, but there's crofters, there's laws and protections for for crofters, but it's a pretty tough life, um, tiny plot of land. I mean, and crofts themselves, you know, the, the buildings are, you know, tiny, tiny little We'd call them, I guess, huts here. Mm. Um, but it's a really important way of life for a lot of people. And so what you're seeing is this legislation sort of coming in that's quite starting to protect and give them a bit more a bit more rights. But it's not something I, I know tons about to speak mm. authoritatively on. Are they... Um so generally a lot of the land's owned by other people who may be absentee. Um, is the the crofters have like a lease? Is it like a you know century long lease? It's is it down through generation? But I'm I'm so, I'm not yeah, 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 not yeah, yeah solid on the facts around the crofting. Just while we're on them too, you mentioned sort of structural challenges. You know, in terms of um, you mentioned um, Cameroon there, and you know the the. What, what what are some of those structural challenges? I mean, that's a, it's a very broad question because I guess, you know, Scotland may be different in terms of some of the detail to Cameroon perhaps, but what are some of the, let's just call them issues, mm. that, that you, you are seeing, that you saw there and you're, you said you're trying to sort of work on now? Yeah, I mean, the thing that really fascinates me is when we look at various challenges that communities, individuals, countries, the world are facing and you sort of try to sit back and not just 
focus on some of the symptoms and how they're playing out in an immediate sense. But when you try to look at what are the causes, what's going on behind this, there's a lovely phrase that comes from a, an expert in, in health inequalities. He says, what are the causes of the causes? A guy, guy called Michael Marmot. And so when we sort of look upstream, I often, often say we need to channel out in a three-year-old. Um, you know, often three-year-olds are always asking, but why, why, why? We need to do that. And so not just take at face value what's going on around the world and yeah just try to figure out what's behind it and there are deep roots colonization <laughs> patriarchy all sorts of things but for me the way our economies operate how they're designed who's winning who's losing what sort of economic activity is celebrated incentivized what sort of ec economic activity is not in, even counted as important uh different sort of business models how that flows onto infrastructure and energy and all those sort and you know how we grow our food being an important part of that so to me the you know this big piece of the story is the economy so it's not everything so i'm not saying you know unilaterally the economy is absolutely everything and there's deeper questions you could ask about why the economy is the way it is but for me until we really start to grapple with changing our economic systems we won't have a fighting chance in dealing with this, the challenges we're facing today. We will can put band-aids on them. We might be able to address some in isolation through interventions or what I'd, I'd say is sort of ultimately, if we're honest, downstream treatment rather than dealing at source with some of the, some of the challenges. And the, it, the economy can be a huge blocker uh, to progress as, as well. So that's sort of that's a space I. I try to occupy and question, really, and, and ask, just, you know, reflect on what is it about the economy that needs to shift and, and you know, why is it designed this way? And there's a whole lot of, whole lot of discussions there. So what can we... I've mean, got, got a lot of questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. Um, uh, I don't know where to start. Well, not, oh, well, let's just keep going with that one. So what, what are some of the changes to the current economic, economic systems? I don't know, the top three that you feel need to take place and whether it's site-specific, you know, in a country or it's just a mm. general, doesn't matter where you are in the world, there's some serious changes that need to take place. What are a couple of those? So one is I think we need to actually shift our mindset. So this isn't a, something I could say to a government minister, here's what you need to do next week. This is how we think about the role of the economy. And you probably, I think I used this image actually, you probably remember the sort of 1990s sustainable development discussions where you saw sustainable development talked about as three pillars, social, environment, economy. I think those images are probably some of the most dangerous images in the world because what they suggest is that the economy is on a par with society and the environment. And actually what ecological economists, what feminist economists have been telling us for decades and, of course, what First Nations communities have been telling us for millennia is that we need to understand nested systems. We need to understand that the economy sits within society and the two sit within nature. You know, we, you cannot push the economy beyond what the natural world can, can handle. And the economy is a function of how, you know, how society is operating. So that sort of shift of understanding the economy as something that needs to be in service of what I describe as higher order goals rather than a goal in its own right is a mindset shift and it, you know it's easy for me to just say that but it, it's a it's quite a profound shift of how 
you think, you know, and you think about hearing the way the economy is just discussed in the media or political promises around the economy. It's, you know, we've got to have a strong economy. We have to grow, 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 grow growth, the economy. Growing. And, and often the proxy for growth measurement is a really flawed measure of GDP, and we can, we can talk about that. But we have designed our economies in a way that they're designed for and dependent on economic growth. And there is just there's so much evidence that our planet can't handle that anymore. And also, it hasn't done a good enough job in delivering what people need either. I mean, we still see, despite you know economies that have been growing for the last few few decades, um, yeah, marginally, and that's getting it's getting harder and harder to squeeze out growth economy growth growth out of the economy. We're hearing economists talk of the risk of secular stagnation. So even on its own terms, it's, it's starting to fail. So we sort of, my, my point is we sort of need new recipes now. Now that we're, we're grappling with the reality of planetary boundaries, that we can't keep push, pushing Mother Nature beyond what she can handle. I mean, we see her hemorrhaging. I mean, just drought being declared in England. Uh, people in Glasgow, 35 degrees, you know. Sweltering. Yeah, and, and, you know, and we're seeing that this is costing lives around the world. And, and I often see, you know, farmers farmers know this so much more than, more than anyone because they're living it every day. But so we've got to stop reaching for those recipes that we were used to last century. And sometimes that's going to be exploring and experimenting with new ways of doing things because there is no blueprint that we can pull out of the drawer and just press go on. But there are some lessons and there are chinks of what I describe as chinks of light, communities around the world, businesses are undertaking the sort of practices that we need more of, that we need to we need to grow those sorts of activities. And, and there are some governments too that are grappling with these questions in sort of, yeah, in patchy, patchy ways. None of them have yet done this in a really properly, you know, systemic way and across the whole the whole piece. But there are some really good examples, I think, of different governments that are starting to undertake the sort of shifts that we need that will start to build towards what I describe as a well-being economy, essentially an economy designed for the well-being, well-being. of people on the planet. Let's go to let's do that then. What are some examples of Government. governments that are, that are doing – you see them doing great things, being a benefit in the right direction? Well, I mean, I think some of the shifts – we're here in Canberra, shifts towards public public transport is a, a good example, you know, moving away from cities that are designed for cars and for petrol and consumption to cities that are designed for communities to hang out together and get there through on public transport or walking. So, yeah, infrastructure design. Um, in, in Scotland, which is, you know, the place I, I know best at the moment, really good examples of things like they've got a whole government agency called Zero Waste Scotland, and its job is set up to really inculcate this idea of the circular economy. And there's lots happening here in Australia on, on the circular economy as well. I, th- I suspect your listeners will have lots of examples that they'll know of or probably be involved in themselves. But this government ag- agency saying we want to make sure that the way production and consumption is done in Scotland is circular, not linear. And so they they're supporting all sorts of changes, investing in business innovation, supporting the pioneers that prove it's possible. And there are also there are governments around the world have got what they call wellbeing frameworks. So these are I guess dashboards that set out a goal for government and have a whole lot of metrics underneath it to start to measure progress in a different way, to broaden out, I guess, what's on the the horizon or in the inbox of politicians when they're making decisions. So it's not just, oh, how's GDP moving or how's the stock market moving, but they have a much richer suite 
of information at their hand. And, they, you know, often they've had that information for a while, but it hasn't been given the, the preeminent, sort of the, the eminence, is that the word, the, you know, mm. the, the, the profile in their decision-making. The as some of the, Yeah, right. as some of the more traditional economic metrics, such as GDP or, you know, raw employment figures. You know, we don't often talk about the quality of jobs as much as, you know, Percentage of unemployment or employment, but we need to we need to ask what sort of jobs are they? Are they allowing people to put food on the table? Are they do they have dignity and purpose? Are people mm. feeling that they're bullied at work? And you know, do they give people enough time to spend time in their community and care for their family? So we need to sort of ask those more qualitative questions about our economy. And f- so I often say we need to be fair weather friends of economic growth rather than its ever faithful followers. So we need to think about what sort of growth, in what direction, you know, what circumstances and where, rather than just this sort of the rate of growth and narrowly focus on that. Well, the GDP, I, mean, I can't remember, you, you might have touched on it and I just keep hearing it, it's fascinating. You know, GDP takes in everything, including, you know, the, basically the economics of the prison system and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot, a lot of other very, um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of... Um, Economics and money tied up in some not so um, pleasant industries mm-hmm. that all contributes, and so it's like do you throw it all in? Oh, we got our GDP is growing, but the, as you say, I guess the quality of that growth and the mm-hmm. sort of who gets impacted and who doesn't can it's yeah. it's really. Um, it's a pretty outdated measure, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it was. It was. I feel, in a way, I feel sorry for GDP because it's <laughs> the sort of image I have. <laughs> like, it's a, like it's a thing. Yeah, I kind of. It's the image I have. It's kind of like a shoe that a, a foot that was too big for it has been pushed into, mm. so it's bursting at the seams. It was never designed to give us a sense of how well a country is doing. And its creator Simon Kuznets famously said, "You cannot tell the welfare of a country by just looking at, at GDP." So, it, well, what was different? Slightly different. Who was that? Then. Sorry, Simon. Um, Simon Kuznets. And so it came out of trying to essentially assess the impact of Roosevelt's New Deal uh, in in the States. Then the war happened and it became really useful to understand, you know, spending on war and and how governments could grapple with what they could could spend on. And then after the war, a whole lot of UN institutions were set up and GDP GDP became embedded in that through the national accounting system. And you had the, in the Cold War era, you had the the Western countries saying, look at our GDP and the Soviet countries saying, well, we have our GDP. You know, it, it was all about how do we grow bigger? And then our geopolitics is so often designed around GDP too, the, you know, the G7, the G20, all those global groupings and the power that goes with them, you know, voting in the, you know, the IMF and the World Bank and so on. It, the, the entry ticket to those clubs is how big's your GDP? Yeah. And, and as you say, <laughs> and I think it's really important to think about, GDP will count some good stuff going well. So, for example, if there's more renewable energy being built and, the, you know, the wages being paid to workers and that what they then spend in their local community, that will be G- add to GDP. But also if one of them crashes their car on their way to their job and ambulance gets called out and they have to, re, you know, get a new car, that will also add to GDP. Mm. And so it, what's bound up in it is these sort of really perverse incentives. And, you know, to go back to our three-year-old, I so often have heard three-year-olds say, why would you want something that's gross? Mm. I mean, and, and I think that's really, really apt because it, it scoops up in it the good, the bad and the ugly and calls it all good. And so we, we get this sort of misleading sense of how our country's doing 
But of course, it's it's so stuck in people's minds of oh. GDP has gone down slightly, you'll have the media in a frenzy saying, is Australia heading to a yep, recession? recession. Terrible. And, 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 you know, in a way that's not unreasonable because so much, there's this sort of structural imperative, like, you know, employment will be related to that because we've currently got a system that's dependent on it, um, taxes and so on. So this is, this is hard. It's not as simple as just replacing GDP. It's it's a, we need to have actually a wider conversation about how we think about the economy and pull it away from growth orientation. And I guess the point is that that conversation will be harder if we've still got GDP as our, our compass. As your reference point. Um, the um, – oh, what was I on bloody side then? GDP – um, oh, well, there, there are alternatives. I mean, famously, Bhutan has the... Gross national happiness. Gross national happiness. Yeah, yeah. And Bhutan's had, had that out since 1972, um, same year that the Limits to Growth report was, was published, interestingly. And it's, in a way, I have this very Western definition of happiness because I wish they didn't have <laughs> called happiness because it's actually really rich, nine domains. They have things like time use, uh, how cultural vitality. It's a really cracking measure of, measure of progress. There's heaps of other alternatives. The UN's got the Human Development Index. Is OECD has something called the Better Life Index. Lots. I mean, there's there's no shortage of people Quite having a an alternative. Yeah. And in a way, I don't think that's a challenge anymore. It's more what's underneath that conversation. Are we prepared to think about our economies in a different way and think about the economy in service of what people really need? rather than having it as this sort of goal in its own right and we're there to, you know, serve the economy and the environment's there just as an input into production. So it's, it's sort of a more deeper conversation that I think we need to grapple with, which sadly makes it harder. You know, mm. as easy as just flicking in, out GDP and bringing in something else. Yeah, a prescriptive kind of way of doing it. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around The Kitchen Table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash The Kitchen Table. And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Um, just talking about, back to your or the question about government and what they're doing, I, what I do note is... Alarmingly, I have to say, just because I don't know where it's all going and kind of what... I don't know if the full kind of picture's been put on the table, is the tracking of emissions. <clears throat> now, in, in, you might be aware in Ireland recently, I believe, <clears throat> the, the, the agricultural community there, the, the farmers have been, I'm not sure how they're going to roll it out, taking out a million cattle right. out of their system, right, because... The, the the simple way to, to I won't say justify that, but the, the the so-called logic of that is, if we have a million less cows farting, mm-hmm. it's going to save, it's going to it's going to that that's that's a whole lot of emissions like methane primarily, that is going to <clears throat> not be happening, and that's going to be a good thing for the planet. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I've got a real problem with that because. Um, 
and that's why, um, you know, Walter, and I'm going to be interviewing him this afternoon, his take on whole methane from the, a very scientific point of view blows the lid on the whole methane argument about methane's killing, mm. killing the planet. And so <clears throat> with that in mind, you know, the removal of those animals who are, when managed well, um, actually help sequester mm. carbon because of their grazing, and they're removed from that, so there's a whole lot of... Um, there's, there's an opportunity cost of that, not having them in the system. And Irish people aren't going to stop eating meat. No. They're going to go on, They're going to eat all lamb. So they're going to get it from somewhere else. And yeah. so there's going to be emissions mm. being sort of generated to get the meat to the people still. You know, so yeah. there's this sort of... It's an interesting... Yeah. It's, it's a really good example, I think, of... Oh, that's a, there's a problem. What's the solution? Cows are farting. Let's get rid of them. When there's so much more to it. And I just... I'm just kind of really... Interest, well, interesting to get your view on that. Um, but also, you know, that's just one example of where this is heading and, and, and there being documentation of and calculation of people's emissions and, and not just farmers, but as a consumer. You know, I go and, you know, one drives a car, they buy groceries, there's, there's emissions attached to the growing of that food and, the, you know, and that being a starting point for a real lack of sovereignty for people where they're going, oh, my God, I just need to live, Mm -hmm. and now I'm being taxed for the emissions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Again, in a very isolated, there's a problem, this is a solution kind of of thing. Have you noticed that? Are you concerned? Are you, you know, is is that, is is there, what do you think about that? I mean, I think think what I'd I'd say to that, not being a scientist, uh, and I defer to, you know, the likes of you and and Walter for for the detail, but is, I mean, it's hard to think there's much better than local and seasonal. Uh, rather than shipped in in plastic and whether that's shipped in tofu from China but it's wrapped in plastic and all the emissions that go with that versus something that's, you know, reared or grown grown and harvested locally and, of course, seasonally. I mean, I think that is one of the problems that, you know, rich consumers around the world have got accustomed to expecting being able to find anything they want out of season because we're this sort of this buffet way of shopping we're so used to. You know, we want a full table full of anything and I'm just going to get this, but I want, to, I want the choice. And I think there are some really exciting developments, you know, around encouraging people to eat more seasonally. Restaurants are really embracing local local um, produce. So I think that to me is, to, you know, you can't get a better rule of thumb than, than local and seasonal. And I'm not brilliant at it, but I, I, I do my best. Uh, you said something, you used a couple of couple of words that I think are really applicable beyond just the, the cattle methane emissions example, you use the word managed well. And I think that that phrase applies to the question around growth as well. There are some parts of the world, some parts of Australia, that will need more growth. And the evidence is that in at lower levels of economic development, to use those phrases that I'll you know, critique myself, but to, you know, countries that do not yet have enough need more. And the question is, uh, can they use that growth to invest in collective institutions, school systems, health systems and so on? And when they do, you see that the returns in terms of life expectancy, infant mortality going down, literacy rates, et cetera, going up, those sorts of good things that matter for, I guess, what we might describe as social progress, they follow GDP. But the, those returns start to tail off at sort of relatively middle-income country country stage. And and so this, again, this sort of points out, you know, it's a question of what's, how are we managing it well and, you know, what sort of growth in what circumstances and, and moving away from this sort of blind faith, yep, 
economic growth is the solution to everything, roll it out, everything will be fine, we can just read across all the problems of society or problems of the environment, we need more growth because we need more money to you know, invest in cleaning it up. It's this sort of crazy circular logic. It's just admitting to ourselves that some countries have got to the point where they've arrived. And this is the title of a a book I co-authored a few years ago, that, you know, maybe countries like Australia and... The economics of arrival. Yeah, maybe maybe we've arrived. And so, Mm. and again, that that sort of comes back to your... That phrase you use, managed well. What does it mean to to make ourselves at home? It means to manage well. And, And that actually is, you know, the original meaning of the word economics is household management. So if we're going to think about you know, managing well on our planetary home. That's not just push down on the accelerator, turn a blind eye to the collateral damage that it does. It's thinking about what sort of economy do we want to take care of our, our children and our cousins around the world. And that, that's a very different conversation. And again, and that, one of the things I want to mention is that I'm really heartened because it's hard to stay optimistic sometimes, but I'm really heartened by what's happening in certain businesses uh, who are just saying, yeah, we want to be, we have to be commercially viable. We have to, you know, survive as a, as a financially successful business, but that's not the point. We're doing that in order to be able to be part of the solution. And so whether it's businesses that are part of the circular economy movement or the sort of regenerative farming, I mean, you know, farmers need to be successful. They need to keep their head, you know, food on the table and wash their face financially. But they're doing so for much deeper mm. reasons. And I, I, that, it, it fills me with hope because I think then you're starting to get coming together, these pioneering governments, you're starting to get businesses and you're getting communities who are sort of waking up to some of these discussions. And, yeah, it's hard not to feel hopeless at the moment given the, the news that, you know, we're, we're all hearing at the moment and the impact. And, we, you know, we, we're seeing the planet hemorrhage before our eyes. We're seeing that people dying around the world because of that. And we're also seeing still, you know, there's been growth in Australia over the last few years. We've still got homeless people sitting in, you know, doorways in Canberra, mm. one of the richest cities in the world. It, you know, th- those recipes. Is it? Yeah, yeah, per capita. And, you know, it's really? one of the most privileged, yeah. <clears throat> wow. And, you know, in one of the richest countries. Mm. So we, those recipes haven't delivered for enough people. Um, but, what, yeah, what I try to hold on to is that hope that, there is work happening everywhere, actually. Maybe not yet adding up to enough, but it's, it's maybe getting there. Well, who benefits from there still being homeless people in the streets and who benefits from still, you know, the, the current system that's in place, the economic system, you know, and who benefits from, you know, the status quo or not even a status quo, it's actually like, you know, the the, the ramping up of... You know, a lot of the, um, you know, I guess what the indicators within the GDP, you know, what makes it up and kind of for people to, you know, that divide of income and, and wealth, um, who's benefiting from that? I mean, maybe not individual. If you know, if you know them individually, great. But, I mean, what's the incentive for that just for some, for that to remain? It's a really good question, and I guess there's a couple of levels. I mean, there's the sort of apparent benefit, and then there's the, if we really take a good hard look, is that really benefiting? So folks who are embedded in this current system, you could include all sorts of industries, you know, advertising, fossil fuel sector, you know, car sector, folks whose livelihoods depend on those industries, quite, 
you know, understandably will be thinking, well, hang on, my livelihood depends on this work. I, you know, why would I want to change that? Mm. But we've got to meet that question on a human level. It's okay, well, how it, that's a collective response is needed to that nervousness. I mean, a big debate in Scotland at the moment is around North Sea oil. And so many people there whose livelihoods depend on extracting more out of the North Sea. But they're also saying, we don't like these jobs. There's been research done interviewing North Sea oil workers. They're saying it's, it's insecure work. It means big chunks of time run away from our families because it's fly in, fly out sort of set of work. They would love to have a pathway that they could walk away from it. And, and, and so I, I think that's, that's a societal response is needed rather than just lecturing them or you know, saying shut them down now. We need to tend to that very real, mm. very human, very natural, understandable reaction. And, and so I guess that sort of points to the two levels. You know, folks whose livelihoods depend on the current system, of course they're going to, you know, think, well, hang on a minute, I'm not quite ready to throw this away without something else. And then, but then there's also that, that North Sea oil example. So it points to, but are they really benefiting? Are they really happy? Are they, do they have the sort of lives that they want? And so often when you, people are given a chance to sit down and just take a breath and think about what really matters in their life. It's not having the fanciest, most expensive, trendiest kitchen or, send, you know, the most up-to-date trainers. That stuff matters for social affiliation, of course. Uh, but if when people say what really matters to them, wherever they are in the world, actually, you so often get responses along the lines of health, relationships, being out, being able to be outside in the in the natural world, dignity and purpose. And then you've got to ask a question, you know, is the economy geared up to deliver those? And so I think those of us working on economic system change, of, of which I sort of count myself one of, you know, a huge, diverse, rich mosaic of a movement, of which you and all, you know, regenerative farmers are also part, I, w- I would say I think it behoves on us on the, as a movement to be able to have conversations that, one, excite people about the possibility of a different way of doing things, but also show why it's possible and point to the examples and but work with government and policymakers to help mo- make those, those pathways steady and secure. So we're not asking people to, to chance at all. But that's why, you know, a lot of people talking about the narrative of this really, really mm. matters. So, Do you think that above, the say, say the fossil fuel industry um, who, you know, dare I say, probably not excited about electricity, electric cars and things. Um, and maybe and maybe they are because that's that's they're, they think 100 years ahead and that's kind of, you know, they're, they're gearing up for that at some point. You know, is there, is there anything I'm, I'm sort of, I've been, I haven't been too far down the rabbit hole here, but, you know, to me there's a sense of there's the industries, there's a fossil fuel industry, there's, you know, the other ones. And, is you know, is there a level of, you know, whether it's government or banking finance or 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 you know a group of people that are mm-hmm. sit above all that and going I don't want anything to get better because I actually like the fact that all these minions are doing stuff that I'm benefiting from whether it's you know mm-hmm. um, via different industries or whatever is that somewhere you've gone yeah there, there, so there are I think if we're really honest there are some industries that 
almost profit from our collective failure to keep people safe and well and healthy and protect our planet. There are plenty of industries that make a shed load of money from whether it's anxiety treatments or cleaning up after an oil spill or preying on people's insecurities to sell them more stuff. Mm. I don't think it's the conspiracy, um, you know, that, that might come on a Netflix film, for example, of, you know, folks sitting around the room plotting. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched a little film called The Light Bulb Conspiracy. No. It's, it's a fascinating little film where... And, and, you know, where it says light bulbs initially lasted a long, long, long time. Oh, and yeah. then light bulb manufacturers said, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> this isn't good for our profits. No. So they all teamed up. I don't think it's a conspiracy, is it? <laughs> well, they, they, they teamed up yeah. to, make, to design light bulbs that didn't last. Yeah. But what we're seeing now with the shift is, well, there's this really famous example, Philips, um, the, the electricity company, who are saying, okay, you don't actually need the light bulb. What you need is light. So they sell units of light. It's really cool. They call them lux, little units mm. of light. And so the, the, this is the famous example of Schip- Schiphol Airport in Amsterdam where Philips isn't selling them light bulbs that they then have to get the people who work in Philip, at Schiphol Airport to replace them. They'll say, we will make sure you, the airport is lit. And so it's their incentive to have longer life because then they don't have to send people around to replace them. And that's okay. the shift from access rather than ownership is, is part of, I think, this, this shift in mentality. Um, and, and we're seeing that with people, you know, renting scooters. Uh, well, I've seen them around camp. Yeah. I drove one around um, Michael Gooden. Thank you very much for that, uh, shouting me a ride from the conference back over the bridge yeah, yeah. on a Sunday night. Yeah, so sharing, that's yeah, a that tiny awesome. example of yeah. sharing ownership or, you know, co-housing or there's a cracking little tool library here in Canberra that I'm trying to encourage my husband to, to use so he doesn't need to go out because we have to do some renos. Oh, you go and borrow a yeah. power tool. Yeah, it? yeah. And really? no, he doesn't need to, no one needs to own a power tool because, mm. you know, and, you know, cars, that's that's, that's oh no, men have to. Own, hang on, men have to own power tools. This is a thing. <laughs> Maybe not all of them though. But what if your your mate real had a couple men? No, I don't and you know, you know, there's ways <laughs> yeah, no, totally, it. totally. I get it. I get it. Yeah. No. And and I think young the young generations are sort of really understanding that their freedom is access rather than. Yeah ownership because it can be a pain in the backside to own a ton of stuff you know people there was a time I don't know if the the statistic is up to date but when I was writing the book the statistic was that you know one of the biggest growth industries in the US was storage so people had their big mansions in the US but they had so much stuff they then had to pay for storage I suspect you know there's people here who have a lot of stuff sitting in their house that they don't like or use and it's you know they're just delay it oh, I should take it to the, the salvos but I can't be bothered so just rethinking our approach mm. to stuff and ownership is some of the questions we need to explore this is awesome um, tell me Wellbeing Economy Alliance yeah which rather which is yeah. to we all yeah. which is kind of like a theory of change actually we all but it'll only be by collaborating that we'll, we'll bring about the change we need ah, so we all yeah I did so, so, see that written and I didn't, yeah, I didn't know so, so we all I describe it as having many mothers it's a it's a global collaboration it was set up just over five years or so ago from all sorts of different folk academics who had been building the evidence base around the need for and the possibility of economic system change, activists, people working with government who said, you know, we've been working on this question of how do we create a more humane, more sustainable economy. They'd all been doing that for decades, some of them, but in different, you know, just disconnected way. And they said, you know, there's heaps going on. There's heaps of action. 
but it's disconnected. So we need to link together. So we all were set up to try to, I guess, be that connective tissue and in the hope that one, it can nourish the movement a bit more because this is hard, exhausting work, as you'll know when you're going against the grain. You know, it, it can be really tiring and lonely. So to be a bit of that, you know, a space for people to come back to and know they're part of something bigger and feel recharged because of that, but also to really collectively push these conversations around we need to rethink our approach to the economy. We need to kick, you know, GDP into the 20th century dustbin where it belongs and but work together from doing so. We need to shine a spotlight on the pioneers that prove it's possible. And again, I, I just keep thinking those regenerative farmers that we heard about and that you're, you know, you're one of and you'll know so many more. They're one of the, they're the pioneers of showing this is what is possible. This is the direction of travel. We need more people to, to go in. So we all is very much about that. What's beautiful is that there's a ton of local hubs bubbling up around the world. Uh, I was part of setting up We All Scotland, but there's local hubs bubbling up in, in New Zealand, here in Australia, in South Africa, in the Netherlands, in Ireland, in Canada, in East Africa. It's, it's wonderful. And they're all folks saying, yeah, we want to be part of this movement. How does it survive in terms of funding? You know, is it volunteer? Is it a kind of commercial business? Is it not for profit? The government, is the government supporting that? Yeah, so so it's it's from a uh, few donations, but also largely from um, philanthropic funding. So it's not a huge enterprise. The global team's about ten people there now. I, I left back in March, and but I'm still sort of affiliated with them. But um, I st- I stepped away from being part of the core team back in March. So it's largely through foundations and and so on um, they don't want to get too big um, mm. they actually want to work themselves out of existence um, and they've got a plan to to do that you know we don't we all doesn't want to be around forever wouldn't it be great yeah it's just the new way of done, doing, done, doing done his job if it's yeah. if it's kind of yeah. disbanded yeah and government the question around government's a, tri- a tricky one because we all really helps government um, we advise well, we i'm still saying we aren't i um, no, well, you're, they, they, you're never, you're never ex. No, once no, we co-founded something. No, that's right. Uh, they advise government a lot. They instigated something called the Wellbeing Economy Governments Partnership, WeGo, which is a, a bunch of governments who are trying to just learn from each other around how to put some of these questions and these ideas into practice in their economic policy making. So I think government and you know the Scottish government now has an explicit purpose to create a wellbeing economy, and they do international diplomacy on the back of that. They don't give we all any money. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. I think maybe they should, but then I think, oh, it's great to be able to... They benefit from it. They absolutely do, yeah. 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 It's a bit rude. Yeah, it'd be nice if they gave some no-strings no grant money, but not yet. I mean, we're, it's still emerging. Who, who's um, the, the... Just back to Scotland there in terms of the government, mm-hmm. what, what is the state of the government there? Who's in power, so to speak? And Because mm-hmm. um, they were looking to... Did they have, not have a referendum there? Some, they did back in 2014. So Scotland, if you think about it, it's a bit like one of the states here in terms of powers that are devolved is the term they used a lot. Yeah. So, it's, so it's still within the UK, but the government in Holyrood is the, the parliament. Uh, it's run by the Scottish National Party who have teamed up with the Greens. So it's a So they're currently in power. They're in power. Yeah. And they're it's a system that's designed not to have majority governments. You know, the the voting system and how the seats are counted they want to discourage having majority rule, but um, together those two parties who are both pro-independence okay. um, have got a cooperation agreement and so they're talking about having plans for a referendum next year, probably October next year. UK government um, has said no 
and so now it's probably going to go to the courts. Um, and the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has said, OK, if we don't get the courts to figure this out, the next UK election we will badge or, and frame as a referendum. Because and, okay. and, and the SNP famously has sent in the last few elections a huge number of members Sorry, of Westminster Party, the Scottish National Party, oh, okay, yeah. has sent a huge number of members of Parliament to Westminster. So there's this mm. huge SNP block in, in Westminster. So they, they traditionally do, well, traditionally, in the last few years, do relatively well. Traditionally, it was Labor. They were, you know, Scot- Scottish people sent Labor politicians down to Westminster. There's, I think, very few... I mean, in the past Parliament, there was one Labor MP from Scotland. That's how much mm. things have changed. Is that, is that sort of similar to Australia where you've got Labor and, you know, the, the Nationals and the Liberals? Is there, is there any sort of similarity there with yeah, kind of the politics yeah, of that? Yeah, I mean, there's a very rough, crude read across with the Conservative Party and the sort of the Liberals here mm. and Labor Party and La- Labor in, oh, in the dear. UK. Yeah. Uh, but what mixes it up is this constitutional question. So in Scotland, you don't have... The dividing lines are not Conservative Labor they yeah. are around largely around the constitution. If you're pro indie or again, you know, or, or pro or, union or is how. Yeah. And of course, Brexit messed that up because in the 2014 election or referendum, a lot of people said that they voted no for independence because they wanted to stay part of Europe. Two years later, uh, Brexit happened. Yeah, right. Scot- Scottish people, about sixty-two percent, if I'm, if my memory serves me well, voted to stay in the European Union. So now there's sort of this, uh, this framing from government, from the SNP, from the Scottish National Party, is we're getting we've been taken out of Europe against our will. Yeah vote for independence, we'll get back into Europe. Now, of course, people are saying, hang on, it won't be that easy. So there's debates around that. But it's all muddled and messy. Mm. It's it's not politics like we used to know it. Is the, how long have they been tied up with, uh, in the, you know, with basically a state of the UK? Like, is that how many, how, are we, how far are we going so back there? 1745. Yeah. And then there, that was Battle of Culloden. And then there was sort of the Act of Union. Culloden. So That's right. Centuries. Yeah. Did you watch the Outlander show? No, I haven't been watching it, but... I saw the main actor walking around my local street once, which apparently was quite exciting. But oh, he's it? quite dishy, apparently. <laughs> yeah, um, we watched a few series of a few uh, series, yeah, and then it sort of started going off a bit track. They went to the states. Was, it was but there was a great. That's why Battle of Culloden. I remember that because that was culminated in one of the yeah. One at the end of the series, um, but it's a great history, history lesson. Yeah, it was kind of like yeah. I said you know I love the having Scottish ancestry too. Going oh that was really um, heartening to know mm. not all the, the was, news wasn't all good but just kind of the way they lived and I imagine it was reasonably true to true to type um, let, I had another question for you um, your other book Being Bold mm, yeah budgeting report. for children's well-being yeah big report it was a report not a, yeah, bo- a big report. report I was asked to, uh, asked tell to me about it. that one because yeah. that sounds great so I was asked by I guess representatives of the children's sector in Scotland a few years ago, beginning of lockdown actually, um, to who said they didn't understand the economics and the budget in Scotland, but they knew it really impacted their sorry they the children's being... sector. So okay. various organisations that are part of supporting children in various different ways. Right. So, so education and um, early years uh, work uh, yeah, and yeah, health okay. and yep. also you know also and that they didn't understand. 
how the economics of their industry or their or that works? How the economy impacted them, but also okay. how particularly how the budget impacted them. And right. folks talking about wellbeing budgets quite a lot now, because not least because of what's happening in New Zealand with a, a wellbeing budget there. So they said, well, could I help them figure out what a wellbeing budget for children might look like? And it's interesting they, they asked me, because I'm not from the children's sector, um, and I sort of said, well, yeah, but come on, children's children's prospects are influenced by their family's prospects, which are influenced by how the community, the labour market, the wider economy is operating, questions of inequality and how what, what, what quality jobs are out there. You can't just focus on children alone. To me, you know, that nest, nested system stuff. So I really looked at how can a budget help create a wellbeing economy and what sort of I mean, there's bits in it that are really techy and quite geeky, looking at how the finance minister in Scotland might want to rearrange how she does the budget. Uh, and I think there are some lessons for what might come out in October here in Australia and what might become a, a future wellbeing budget here in Australia. Are they, is that even part? Is that on the agenda? Yeah, the Australian Jim, Jim budget? Chalmers, Chalmers is saying that October will be the first, will include some wellbeing components. And I, I, from what I gather, that's going to entail having some wider metrics within the budget document. Who's helping them with that? Um, Treasury, I think. Why yeah. well, you? You okay. should be helping them. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's quite precise, techie, you know, techie mm. side of things that I, I'm, I'm not so the expert on, but but colleagues are. I'm, I'm but generally, you know, the philosophy of it or the, the yeah. intention behind it. Yeah, it's a really great intention. And I think what they're saying is this won't be or singing or dancing. This is the beginning of a journey, which is great. Because yeah. I think what has to underpin these sort of shifts is a, a huge conversation with people so that particularly you get this mandate for that, those changes and you have a real sense this is what Australians want. So that, that report came out in March 2021 and it's, um, it, it's essentially saying we need to rethink how we do budgets. We shouldn't just count as success how much we're spending on health systems because a lot of that could be a sign of failure. I mean, COVID times being an example, but in, in, in non-COVID times, the more people turning up at hospital, that means more people are feeling sick or anxious or they've been hurt. So we shouldn't just be looking at the spending and celebrating that, we should be thinking how can the budget have a role in reshaping the economy? And to me, I think Scotland and probably Australia as well needs to have a conversation around using the tax system to encourage sort of behaviours we want more of. So maybe that means regenerative farmers have a tax breaks and those who are plundering the land have to pay pay more and start bringing in the environmental costs for some of those decision-making. Maybe mm-hmm. we need to lower taxes on worker cooperatives, for example, or social enterprises, but jack-up taxes maybe on advertising that plays on human vulnerabilities. That's where the budget, I think, can really play a role in starting to redesign the economy. I'm, I'm interested that the government don't seem to be kind of, I mean, I guess I'm a bit biased because I'm in it, but the government haven't kind of embraced the um, the opportunity that, you know, regenerative farming presents for whether it's about emissions and carbon, you know, mm. I mean, because I'm, I'm generalising in some ways, less emissions because there's less use of of products that would have would have emitted you know carbon to, in its production and transport mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, but also in terms of the the outcome of grazing, you know mm-hmm. grazing well, that they haven't kind of got on board that more, and it makes me wonder whether again getting back to maybe a, a so-called agendas or who's benefiting or not that there's a lot of industry that again. Um, isn't that excited about it because it kind of erodes their own agendas, good mm. or bad? You know, like I'm, I'm always fascinated about a lot of 
activists and vo- vocal people, excuse me, businesses, organisations who bang on about reducing emissions, which is great. But, you know, there's a whole lot of the other half of the equation is... Um, well, we know, or we you know, we know, we 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 feel there's a whole extra carbon out there than that was, or you know, we've we've contributed to its to its emissions. There's um, there's it's one thing to reduce emissions going up there and continuing, but there's actually you know the carbon cycle is as important mm-hmm. as it's not one way, it's not linear. It is a yeah. cycle, and there's so much um, uh, more and more science around the benefits of grazing better and, and getting carbon in there. But I just don't know. And look, the government. Yeah, dabbles in the carbon um, economy, but it's just interesting they haven't really embraced it a whole lot more as a as a as a way forward. You know, it's so often governments are sort of racing to be second and not not leading the charge, <laughs> and and maybe they need to feel it more. So maybe we need to have you know cabinet meeting out at your property so they can feel what it's like, and then you know tell them about the science to, that, that backs it up. But for them to get a real sense, because I suspect maybe they just don't know yet. Mm. Uh, you're right though that there probably will be some vested interests are in their lobbying for protecting the, the status quo. Uh, and and it also comes back, I mean, I haven't obviously tallied it up and netted it out, but the less you're having to pay for downstream remedial work on your land because you're keeping your land healthy by using natural cycles and cycles and agroecology principles and so on, that's not going to add to GDP. No. So, so if we still have this GDP lens, we can't celebrate what our planet really needs mm. or what's good for com- communities. But invite them out. Well, yeah. I mean, look. And I, truth be known, there's, there's there's plenty of farmers who are probably doing a better job than I am anyway, and, and uh, you know probably have more data around what they're doing, which I think is really important. Um, we're, we're not flush with data. We kind of a lot of anecdotal and how we feel and how it sees and, you know, that sort of stuff. But in terms of the science and yearly monitoring of carbon levels and that sort of thing. Um, but, yeah, it is, it is, you're right. And, and uh, which leads me to my next question about, and I'm sort of half posed it to you when up in the conference there the other week, mm-hmm. last month, was, you know, do we, and maybe you've answered the question by saying they're rushing to come second, you know, it's like, you know where are where are our efforts best placed? Is it just get on and do stuff like farming better? You know, getting on and contributing to to if GDP is still a reference point, and contribute to that in a meaningful way, um, however that looks. You know, or do we sort of have to step in line with government and change legislation? You know, to get them thinking to then allow us or give us some license to do these things. You know, is there is there a bit of a guerrilla renegade kind of? way to get things done that we should be probably not not um, avoiding? All of that's necessary. So we need mm. that sort of work of just getting on and showing that it's possible, even if that means charting a, a course that's different to the, the mainstream way of doing things because people start to look at that and start to think, well, what's going over, on over there? Maybe I can, oh, they're, they're getting something right. That that's land's looking great. What are they doing? And maybe I can pick that up. So that just doing it differently really, really matters because it proves it's not just desirable, it's feasible. But until we change the policy regime, all, so many of those good examples will be going against the headwinds. So there's also a role, and maybe it's for different people, um, to then work on the policy regime that so it's more supportive of that sort of work. 
And then there's also the work around just supporting those pioneers, telling others about them, but using it to tell a different story about the economy, you know, the bigger picture about, you know, shifting away from the obsession with growth and towards an economy that's more in, in service of what people and planet need. So I, anyone who says one tactic is enough, I, I think is missing, <laughs> missing a whole hundred other tactics. And I think the key thing is for people to find what is it they bring to the party and that'll depend on their skill set, their energy levels, where they are, what they get excited about. Um, you know, some people will love you know, protesting outside headquarters or talking, you know, writing petitions to government and that's so important. Mm-hmm. Others are happily building the evidence base and writing, writing in scholarly journals and in books. Others are happy meeting within government and finding entrepreneurs within the corridors of power and supporting them. And then others, and I'd say perhaps most importantly, are those who are rolling up their sleeves and, and doing it. And that's what I saw so much of at, at that conference was just, it was just awesome. People who are saying, we're just going to get on and do it now because we don't have time to waste. Um, I mean, Manu, I've actually mentioned early on what conference we're, we're referring to. It's yeah. the RCS Convergence Conference, Convergence of um, uh, agriculture, human and planetary health. It was two days back in mid-July. It was awesome and absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, the the examples of farmers getting on and just doing it, you mm-hmm. know, and, and doing really wonderful wonderful jobs. There was, you know, there was some farmers who presented, you know, numbers on what they're doing and their achievements and then others are just, you just have to look at the photos and the video to kind of get a sense of um, what a wonderful job mm-hmm. they're doing. And not just farmers there, obviously there was um, doctors, you had Dr. Zach Bush and, mm-hmm. and, and Fred Brevenza and as a whole, it was just a lovely, wonderful thing. So I want to give them a bit of a plug because um, that's how we got to yep, meet. we wouldn't have met. We wouldn't have been having this conversation. At, at some a point, pub or yeah, <laughs> at the top, um, at at Woolfest, at Woolfest in now that you're back in Canberra, uh-huh. Catherine, on the long weekend of October, uh-huh. Burua holds Woolfest, and they have the blessing of the sheep. Brilliant. It's the Irish. They actually combine. I think they must have had two things. They had the Woolfest, which is a celebration of wool, and then they had the Irish festival. So now it's called Woolfest, and it's uh-huh. and it's um, they get some thousands of people. They run sheep down the main street. The running of the wolves. Pamplona has the running of the bulls. We have the running of the wolves, and you basically you can buy not buy sheep, but you get a number, and you know if your sheep goes over the line first or so. I can't quite remember. But one year they um, just quick quick little story. One year they they had the sheep all lined up, and it had been a really wet um, spring, and the dogs' feet. The guy who had his sheep, um, he, sheep dogs here looking after him to try and keep them on the road. They had really soft paws because of the because oh. of the the soft um, of the spring. Anyway. On the, and they weren't used to being on the bitumen. And, of course, the dogs sort of bailed up and the sheep went into the creek and it was quite... Oh, no, <laughs> it, was a bit, it was a bit of a shit fight, apparently. But there you go. There's an excuse to come across to, to come to Borua. I'll, I'll check out if I can make it. Um, one last question before we do our Patreon little Q&A thing I mentioned before. Um, I've got a few more, but I'm just conscious of the time. Um, what are the risks if we don't change? Oh, God. I mean, I think we're seeing the risks already. Um, as we were saying earlier, yeah, our, our planet is hemorrhaging. And I think anyone who's not taking that seriously has got their head in the sand. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to, to say um, the suffering of people around the world, because we're seeing people suffer today because of what's happening to the planet. Scientists are warning that tipping points are being breached already, which means it's it's the chance to fix things 
is is getting smaller and smaller. Um, so, I, and I, I don't think that's over dramatic. I mean, I, I defer to the scientists, um, and that's what they're saying. But also, you marry that with what communities are saying who are impacted by it, and you marry it with what you see on on the news. But of course, it's not just environment. You know, there's a social side of our economic system too, and so it matters for it matters for communities and people and families around the world. So, I mean, that's at risk, and what the potential is is having a a much better life for everyone in a way that they're they're not stressed, they're not rushing about, they've got a sense of dignity and purpose, they've got enough to live on, and they're not worried about being flooded or bushfire, you know, destroying their land and or extreme heat where they can't they can't go outside. That's that's what the potential is. Mm. Um, well, the good news is that you're on board all that and you're contributing in a very meaningful and positive way that we can um, achieve that potential. Catherine, thank you so much for your time Such here at the Australian National um, Botanic Gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been fun, Charlie. Thank you. That was fun. Our friend, who was the name of the lady came in? Joe? Ross. No. Ross. Well, thank you. She talked about um, a fee, which I didn't know we were going to get hit up with. So I, hopefully that I can convince her that the the promotion we're giving the gardens in this interview is going to be heard by thousands. That's it. Lots of coffee. There's a cafe, a lovely cafe. And it is actually um, great well, gift it's, shop. It's a medieval bookshop. <laughs> lovely, the lovely people, and um, it is a great it's a bit of a bit of a uh, national treasure. Um, as is Walter, my next guest. But Catherine, thank you so much for your time. We're going to do a little quick Q and A for our Patreon members. So if you want to hear the Q and A with Catherine at some point, then uh, jump on Patreon, charliearnett.com.au. Sign up, ten dollars a month. It's, you know, it's two two copies here at the um, Botanic Gardens, uh, or anywhere that is, uh, and um, you get a whole lot of cool, cool free stuff exclusive to our members. Um, Catherine, thank you. We're going to sign off and get get you have a little wee break, and then um, back back for ten. Thanks, Charlie. It's been a lot of fun. Really. It's been really lovely. Enjoyed. I really enjoyed that. Thanks, Catherine. Pleasure. And next week on The Regenerative Journey, my guest is Jason Cotter. Uh, I knew Jason to be a, um, uh, a chappie who was uh, who's now, you know, pretty large in the Australian ancient grains kind of world, uh, and that was the, the primary focus of our chat. However, I was thrilled to um, chat more about uh, his time in Central Australia um, and, and being involved with sort of first contact um, uh, situations there with our Indigenous um, brothers and sisters out there, um, his copyright just a fascinating yarn. It was like we we spent so much more time um, not talking about grain, which was wonderful too because it was a really balanced chat we had. It was a funny interruption in the middle of it, but you can look forward to that uh, next week on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.